please turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We have been making our way through this uh, phenomenal letter uh, of the New Testament where Paul has been in Rome awaiting his trial to see whether he will be executed by Nero or whether he will be released. And he has much to say to encourage us in the midst of our own trials. Look with me at Philippians 3. We're going to be covering verses 17 through 4.1, but I'm just going to start with the first verse for this moment. So Philippians 3.17, and this is again God's Word. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I'll read that again. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For the Christian life, having real flesh and blood examples of what it means to live for Christ at different stages of life, different jobs, parents, whether you're single, married, whether you have kids, whether you don't have kids, it's great to have models of Christian maturity in all different spheres so that we can learn from each other through examples and grow. Now, it it may be hard for you to, to imagine this, but it's been about seven months only since Kobe Bryant died with his daughter in that tragic helicopter accident in Los Angeles. Can you believe it's only been about seven months since that happened? It feels like it's been quite some time since that happened. You may have seen at his memorial service, um, Michael Jordan spoke, and when Michael Jordan addresses the NBA community, the NBA community listens. It's Michael Jordan. And uh, you may have seen this on YouTube, it's about 12 minutes long, and he gets up there to speak about his relationship with Kobe Bryant. And he says, uh, he says basically, he says, I, I was like Kobe's big brother. And Kobe had grown up in, I guess, the 80s and early 90s, he had grown up in his idol was not just basketball, but Michael Jordan was clearly the, his, his, his number one model for how to play the game. And so early in Kobe's career, he was often criticized for being sort of an imitation of Michael Jordan because so many of his moves, so many of his shots, the way he played was just very similar to, to Michael Jordan. Uh, I get, remember, want to be like Mike? Remember that tagline? So I think Kobe was like, I take dibs on that. I will do anything I can to be more like Michael Jordan. Well, there were times where Kobe semi-denied this, but later on he ended up admitting, yeah, he said, um, now I don't even know what this is, but Kobe said, my stop, pivot, turn, fade. I have no idea. Josh Krause, you know what, I don't, I don't even know what I'm talking about. My stop, pivot, turn, fade. I learned that from Michael. And then he would go on to say, they asked you, how much did you copy from Jordan? He said, nearly 100% of the technique, nearly 100%. So, in his mind, his obsession as a young child was, I want to be the best basketball player I can possibly be, and I will do anything it takes with ruthlessness. I will do whatever it takes. I will practice and work every day. I will spend hours of every day. I will adjust all my life if I can be the best basketball player imaginable. And what did he do? He needed a model. 
right? He needed a real-life flesh-and-blood example of what it is like. And you may remember that late in Jordan's career, Kobe and Michael Jordan played against each other a few times. You may, not, you may remember this. And uh, I went back and watched some of this, but while they were guarding each other, I don't understand basketball, so forgive me. Uh, at one point, Kobe whispers something to Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan, this is the middle of a game. Kobe says something to Michael Jordan. I think it's the first time they interacted. And Michael Jordan says something back to him. And then, of course, after the game's over, every microphone is in Michael Jordan's face. What did he say to you? And he's like, he was trying to figure out what I do about the defense when I'm doing my jump shot. And uh, to which I say, I don't understand any of those words, but uh, Michael Jordan explained. He, he explained a little tip to Kobe. And from that point, they started a relationship. And Michael Jordan said, it was sometimes downright annoying. I would get text messages at two in the morning. He said, he said just a few months before he died, Kobe texted me at 2 a.m. and said, what moves were you working on when you were younger? He said, how young? He said, 12. Kobe's asking, and Michael Jordan said, I was working on baseball when I was 12, is what Michael Jordan said. Because Kobe was trying to train his daughter, right, how to play the game. And so for years, he had this relationship. He would call, text, and he wanted to learn from Michael Jordan. And I watched a little YouTube clip where that for about three minutes, they compare about 30 shots and moments in games between Kobe and Michael Jordan, and they are virtually identical. All these incredible moments where you see Kobe looking a lot like his idol, Michael Jordan. Now, what does this have to do with Philippians 3? I think it has a lot to do with our passage. Look at verse 17 again. Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, listen, none of us is living in perfection. Paul said that in chapter 3. I'm not perfect. But he presses on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of him. He's not done with the race, but that does not slow him down. It speeds him up. I'm going to get to the finish line by God's grace. And, and what, do we, what do we see here? I hope for you, I hope that we have a passion for Christ's likeness that rivals Kobe's passion for basketball. Now, that may sound silly, but seriously, when you look at some of these professional athletes, the passion, the relentless intensity the training, how it affects their diet, their exercise, everything is subordinated to becoming a better athlete, right? Does that not put us to shame sometimes as Christians? Am I half as passionate in my walk with Jesus as some pro athletes are in being the best basketball player they can be? And if I am passionate about following Jesus, look around this room at other members of the church who maybe are further along in different ways in your life and look at them and say, I want to understand the integrity of this individual. I want to understand the wise decision-making of this believer who makes such wise decisions. I want to get near them. I want to understand how they do that. We want to see someone's prayer life. This person seems to really understand what it is like to pray and to pray consistently and passionately. My prayer life is not as good as theirs. I want to get near them and I want to learn from them how do you really, in real life, how do you maintain a consistent, devoted prayer life throughout your life? And we need to have our eyes on the lookout. What does Paul say? Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. So we need to be not passive in this. We need to be aggressive. We need to be around people who will help make us better believers. Now, this doesn't mean that we ignore unbelievers or that we are not warm and friendly and we, we, we want to minister to them, of course. But, but you, you know, in life, 
and this is different in different stages, but when you want to make major decisions, aren't there those few people that you lay it all out on the table? What do I do? And don't you want those people speaking into the deepest priorities of your life to love Jesus perhaps more so than you love Jesus? Right? We, we want people around us who can speak wisdom. Sometimes, let's admit it, sometimes wisdom we don't want to hear. Sometimes they're going to tell us the hard truth that we don't want to, like, I don't want to do this, but it's, it's, it's probably right. And they say, no, you, you should do that. You, you need to step forward, and, and that's an act of obedience. You should do that. We need people around us as models of Christ-like behavior. And Scott has done a great job reminding us, you can also find models through people who are already in heaven. This is why we are thankful for Christian biography. We can read about the heroic courage of a Martin Luther, not a man who was flawless, but a man who was incredibly used by the Lord. We can look back at past saints, look at a George Whitfield, not flawless, had some glaring flaws, but we can see his devoted passion for preaching Christ wherever they would let him do it, whether it's in the fields or out in the middle of nowhere. We can read these stories of George Mueller's committed prayer life, and we can learn astonishing things that the Lord did. We must find examples that we can imitate and that we can follow. Okay, so now I want to kind of read through today's text in its fullness here, and let me just set it up this way. And I'm borrowing this from a commentator. There are three uh, sets of two things that we're going to look at. So, no, number one, there's two destinies that Paul's going to lay out in front of us, two destinies, and leading to those destinies are two paths that you have to walk. Two destinies, two paths to walk, and then two kinds of examples that lead us down those paths. Is everybody following that? So there's two destinies, there's two paths leading to each destiny, and then there's two kinds of examples that we are going to follow. And let me just say, if you feel like this text doesn't feel relevant in some ways to your life, I guarantee you it is relevant, because every human being can be found in today's passage, because everyone right now is headed towards one of two destinies in eternity, and everyone in this moment is walking down one of two paths towards these two destinies, and everyone on the planet is following, whether they realize it consciously or not, the examples of others, whether for good or for ill, down these two pathways. So see if you can hear those themes as I unpack this, and um, here we go. This is 3.17 through 4.1. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, here's the contrast, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject 
all things to himself. So look with me here at these two pathways, and we're going to look now here at the negative path towards destruction. Again, one more time, we can't hear these too much, 18 and 19, one more time. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You know, we, we don't hear about Paul weeping an enormous amount of times. We do hear about him weeping at several points in the, in the New Testament, a, a handful of times, but it's not an enormously prominent detail. But Paul's weeping is not something that's usually about his whippings, right? When he's in that jail in Philippi, in this city, what's he doing at midnight? He's singing praises to God after he's been beaten and he's now left without food and in stocks. He's singing. No, no sign of tears or self-pity. But you know what makes Paul weep? When he thinks about the destruction that awaits those who are headed down this path. This is so important. Paul is not a detached… Have you ever heard the phrase an ivory tower theologian? You ever heard this? An ivory tower theologian is the idea that someone is detached from real life. They go up into their study, and they, they spend all this time up there, and they hypothesize and have all their theology, but they don't actually connect it to real life and real people and real destinies. It's an ivory tower theologian, detached from reality. Now listen, Paul could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the greatest ivory tower theologian. Now, Paul was the theologian of theologians. But please understand, his theology led to tears for lost people. And if our theology of the cross does not lead us to weep over people we know, faces we know in our family, uh, right, people that we, that we work with, people that we see on a recurring basis who we know don't know the Lord, does it ever create tears in your eyes? See, anger is not sufficient. There's a place for righteous indignation, but remember Jesus, one time when He sees the Pharisees' hypocrisy, it says Jesus was angered, and then it says, grieved by their hardness of hearts. He has anger mixed with real grief. How about this? In Matthew 23, it's the longest section where Jesus just lets the Pharisees have it. Do you remember this? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You know, it just goes on and on. You whitewashed tombs. You're full of dead men's bones. Outwardly, you look nice and what, what, you know, it goes on and on for a full chapter. You know what happens at the end? Jesus looks over Jerusalem and he's in tears. So, there was a harsh condemnation. They should have known better. Of all people, they should have known, the religious leaders. And Jesus does give them a pretty intense lashing with His tongue. But then He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem you who kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to you. I would have gathered you as a, as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. I will just say, in, in our politically charged atmosphere, we're on social media, people just one-up and just try to own people and just try to destroy and embarrass people. We need more tears as Christians in our inner engagements with those who think other than we do. We need more tears. Think about this. When someone looks at you over a meal and you see tears in their eyes, and they are concerned about your walk with the Lord, are you more likely to listen to what they have to say? I think so. I think you want to say, this person really cares. One pastor said, you can say almost anything to your people if they know that you love them. 
I think that's often true with parents to children. I mean, can't say anything. <laughs> but you could so often say hard things if what? That relationship investment is there. And there's a real love. And Paul says, listen, as I discuss these people, I'm not doing it as a detached ivory tower theologian. I'm doing it and I'm staining the paper, the papyrus I'm writing on right now or that his scribe was writing on. There's tears flowing as I write these words. And, and oh, that the Lord would give us more tears for the lost and more prayers for them. I, I just, I, I don't want to finish this point. Jerry has often said that God, the Word of God, and the souls of men are the three things that last forever. And think about how important the conversations we have now will be in light of eternity, and think about how valuable our opportunities are, and think about how horribly I take advantage of them. We, we live as if life is just going to keep going, and there will always be another time and another later date, and it'll be fine. But there needs to be a sense of tears and urgency in the way that we talk to those who don't know the Lord. And in our prayer life, I mean, I want a better prayer life. I want a prayer life where there really are tears and longings for others to come to know the Lord. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if James 4 comes true. You have not because you ask not. So, so many things that the Lord would, would have done, He does through our prayers in His sovereignty, and we must pray and care for the lost. Let's continue here. Verse 18, middle of the verse, these people whom Paul is weeping over, they walk down this path as enemies of the cross of Christ. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, I will tell you that the majority by far of commentaries that I've looked at this week, the majority by far believe that these people were likely professing Christians, these enemies of the cross. Now, you can already see early in the chapter, do we have Judaizers who were claiming a faith in Christ that also added works to it? Yeah, and so very likely these were professing Christians who walked as enemies of the cross of Christ, but this would certainly apply to all who would consider themselves in this category. What does it mean to be as enemies of the cross? Now, here's why I say this. Number one, this is not a theological problem primarily that Paul's emphasizing. He doesn't say that they teach heresy here. He says they walk as enemies of the cross. In other words, their lifestyle is not a cross-bearing lifestyle. Do you see? They don't like cross. Cross leads to crown in the Christian life, right? You go down through the valley of the cross and you rise when God exalts us in Jesus. Jesus went down the valley of the cross. He was exalted by God the Father. The cross of suffering leads to the crown. And these people said, I want the crown now without the cross. That's how you live as enemies of the cross. You say, I want the benefits now and I don't want to deal with the suffering. Now, an obvious target right now would be the prosperity preachers. I'm not even going to go there because I think we're all on the same page. I hope we are. We've talked about them a lot. That is a very obvious example of being an enemy of the cross, where you act like all the benefits come now, and you'll never get sick, and you'll just trust God, and it'll all go circumstantially well for you. No. But there are lesser ways, are there not, that all of us believe in a kind of prosperity theology? So, so here, here would be an example. Someone I've, I've known, and uh, someone I knew growing up, Christian man was trying to, trying to get his life sort of right with the Lord, and then suddenly 
he finds out he may have a serious illness. And his response was, so this is how you pay me back, God? I've been trying to kind of get my act together, and you let me get sick like this. Now, do you see, he wouldn't have said it directly, but did he not believe that if he was walking with Jesus, bad things would not happen? And can't we fall into that? Like, Lord, I've been trying this week. I've been trying to do what you want, and you let this go wrong? You let this go not the way I had planned? Lord, where are you? Almost as if we had earned a circumstantial blessing by our obedience. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Having to bear the cross is no sign that the Lord is against you. The Lord was not against uh, the Apostle Paul when he was suffering. He's not against us in our suffering. We just heard from Greg. He is for us in the midst of our suffering. We must embrace the mindset that Jesus bore a cross, and we must take up our cross daily and follow Him. These people who reject the way of the cross, look at verse 19. Why do they reject the way of the cross? Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Okay, their God is their belly. I don't think a superficial reading of that might say gluttony. It's gluttony is the problem. Well, it could be, could be. I think Paul means belly here in a much more broad sense. Uh, I think he means appetites. Their God is their physical appetites. A way of saying that is your God is your belly, but this could also involve obviously sexual sin, right? This could involve any kind of sin where the body is involved, desires of the body. And Paul says, these people, their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. Whatever they say they worship with their lips, when it comes to real life, they worship and serve their creaturely appetites, their physical desires, convenience, comfort, ease, food, uh, sinful sexual activity, all those kinds of things, ego-driven, wanting, wanting things for yourself, praise for self, and whatever all the list may be, their God is their belly. Now, let me, let me just say here, Paul is here saying, okay, he's not saying that you're bowing down to a physical idol, your God. You know, oftentimes we think in the Bible, a God is like, was it, Dagon, right? The Philistine God, remember? The ark goes in and Dagon is there and Dagon falls over and worships the ark, at the ark. Uh, we, we think of a physical God, an Ashtoreth pole from the Old Testament, or, or a God of Molech, where babies were offered in sacrifice in the Canaanite uh, era. Paul says, listen, your own fleshly desires can become your God. What does that mean? That means I am willing to sacrifice other things to get more of this thing, even if it's wrong. I, I will do whatever it takes to get more of this pleasure, this gratification, this good feeling, whatever it may be. I will break God's law to satisfy my appetites. And any time I am willing to break God's law to get something, I have made a God out of that thing. If you will lie to get an A, your God is your A, right? If, if you will lie for convenience at your job, then convenience is more important than me or you at that moment than Jesus. Because if Jesus was more important, guess what we would do? We would tell the truth and we would take the inconvenience or take the B, right? So whatever you and I are willing to disobey God to get more of, 
is in that moment our functional Savior, our functional deity, our God. Obvious examples that that, that are just so apparent would be, I'll I'll name some obvious ones and then we can talk about maybe more subtle ones. But when it says here that they glory in their shame, they glory in their shame. Here's some really obvious, almost caricatured examples. As you know, UGA starts back. I don't know how the party scene will look with COVID and whatnot, of a social distance partying. I don't know how that will work. But uh, my, my guess is there will be people who will be bragging about how much alcohol they can drink, right? Glorying in one's shame. There will be people who will boast about how many people they have slept with. They will glory in their shame. This word shame is a, is a connected word to a word Paul uses in Romans 1, where Paul says, women abandoned natural relations, and they were impassioned for one another, and men likewise forsook natural relations with women and were consumed with lust for one another, men committing shameful, same kind of word here, shameful acts with one another and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so here we have something that we call in our culture gay pride or a gay pride parade. Well, homosexuality is not God's will in Scripture very clearly, and yet people will glory, pride, in their shame, in the homosexual lifestyle and living that out. And Paul says, this is not the way one should boast or one should find their identity or find their God. But what about for, for those who maybe don't struggle with those particulars? Well, how about a lustful glance when you're driving in your car? Someone's jogging, could be a guy or a girl, depending on who you are, and you, you, you look, you look twice. What is going on there? Suddenly, in that moment, lust is being engaged, and it's being, uh, it's being gratified in that moment. What about pride? You, you act like, I act like I don't want the compliment, but secretly, part of me wants it more than I should, and maybe even begins to build some kind of identity around those things. Maybe it's reputation. People say, you are so good at this. And you say, deep down, you say, oh, no, 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 not me, not me. Deep down, what are you saying? Yes, yes. I hope, I hope a lot of people recognize that. I hope a lot of people see that. And we, we begin to glory in our shame. It could be the Judaizers of chapter 3. Did they boast in physical circumcision? You better believe it. Read Galatians. They boasted it. They said, listen, if you embrace the Mosaic law and you keep all these dietary laws, making a God of your belly, right? Eat all these foods this way. You can earn God's approval. If you receive circumcision, you can enter into God's people. And man, you can just boast in what you've done, what you've accomplished. Are they making a God out of their belly? Are they glorying in their shame in that point? Yes. So whatever all Paul is referring to, I hope you can see that it applies to all of us in some way or another. And let me just say one other thing here. It is absolutely right and true to speak about very prominent cultural sins. Uh, I'm just naming hot button issues today. I don't know what's happening. But uh, you could could throw abortion into that, right? A lot of these very hot button culturally sensitive issues, transgenderism, all these big things. And it is right and true to have a biblical view of those things and to hold it with with humility and with, with conviction. But we also don't want to miss out on the fact that if that's not my struggle right now, I don't want to ignore my own personal struggles. And, and let's not turn into the kind of people where we are always obsessing over, and I don't, I don't think we do this here, I, don't, I have not noticed that, but I don't want to be the person who's obsessing over the faults of those people, do you know what I'm saying, and not dealing with what? 
the faults going on right here this afternoon when, I have a, when, when my words to my son have a sharp edge that it does not need to have? Well, what about in that moment? I, I need God's grace in that moment. So, let, let's pick back up here again. Let me read verse 19. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Just again here, one more word of of application before we move to the next part. You have to think about earthly things in a sense. Everybody with me here? Okay. You've got to think about your schedule. You've got to think about the appointment. You've got to go to the doctor, the dentist. You've got all these things going on. You've got to think about physical earthly things, preparing food. These things are not wrong. This is good. This is right. But oh my goodness, how subtle is it where we become, become preoccupied with the things of this life, this age, this world, to the neglect of eternal and heavenly things. It is subtle, and we must keep a close eye on our own hearts, our own selves in this regard. How often do we think about eternal realities? Just think, okay, last week, past seven days, did we think about the fact that your roommate's not just annoying or something? Did you think about the fact your, your roommate is an eternal human being who's going to live forever, either glorified by God in the new creation or in this destruction? And did we act in a way that corresponds to that? Are we thinking constantly, daily, I hope even hourly, about eternal things and that this is not just what life's about? You know, the, the concert, and I know we can't go to concerts right now, really, but the concert and the game and the this and the that, we can get so wound up with these momentary things that are often good and right and fine, but they can blur and, and we, can, we can lose our sight of these more eternal realities. Okay, verses 20 and 21. Here's the contrast, the other path. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Go back to what Greg just said to us. God cannot lie. These verses are actually true. This is not religious jargon. This is the Word of God, and here's what it says. In a short amount of time, we don't know how long, Jesus will come back visibly. He will appear. He will judge the world in righteousness. And then for those who know Him, He will create the resurrection of life. Jesus will then judge the world with fire, which is kind of the opposite of the flood, with the worldwide flood. Now we have the worldwide fire, 2 Peter 3. The earth will be burned up and exposed, the elements laid bare, and then Jesus is going to create a new creation, a new earth under a new heavens, and there will be a new Jerusalem, and His people will live with physical, resurrected, glorified bodies in the visible presence of Jesus on a new and glorified planet earth, ruling and reigning in the way that Adam and Eve failed to do as His image bearers. Do we actually believe that? Think about the astonishing truth that was just said. If that is true, it simply changes the way you live tomorrow. 
It simply does. Because we have a different kind of hope. We're breathing different air. We come from another place. People should be, you know, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, some of you may know, he's got that thick uh, Scottish accent. And um, uh, Sinclair Ferguson will say, you know, I, he goes, I, I, get on, I got on, a, uh, I got on a, uh, an elevator, and he said, there's a few people in there, and we're talking. And he said, as we get off the elevator, he said, I cannot tell you how many times, this is in like Charlotte, North Carolina, <laughs> where he used to pastor, uh, his accent didn't fit in quite right in, in, in North Carolina. And he said, he'd get up, the elevator would get to the floor. And he said the person in front of him would be getting off the elevator and they would turn around. He said, this has happened many times. The elevator door starts to close and they say, where are you from? Uh, and they, they, they knew, they knew. Uh, yeah, he says, and then he says, I'm from Charlotte. <laughs> and they go, okay, no, I'm from Scotland originally. But uh, he said, just by hearing him talk for 30 seconds in an elevator, they knew you were not raised here. Your, your accent betrays you. Your accent tells people the kind of people, how they spoke that you grew up around right? That's how you learn patterns of speech. You may have a Southern accent. You may have a Scottish accent, an Irish accent. You may have a, a Boston accent, which I can't do. But uh, you, whatever it is, people know where you're from because you were influenced by other people in those important years, and you developed patterns of speech based on how those people spoke, and now you carry it with you at wherever you go, right? It's just, it's there. And, and Paul is saying, listen, you are a citizen right now of another place. You've never been there. But you need, to, you, you need to have the accent of the kingdom. The way we talk and the priorities we show in our language and actions should smell of heaven. And for unbelievers, Paul says, it's going to be a, an unpleasant smell. It's the smell of death to those who do not know Christ. But to those who know Christ, it's the smell of life. And that needs to be something that is obvious on us. Okay, I'm rewinding here to a couple weeks ago, but if you remember in Philippians chapter 1, same idea came up. We won't go there, but Paul uses that word citizenship. Remember this? Back in chapter 127, he says, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And you remember this? So, just a quick review. Hang with me here. So, Philippi was a colony of Rome. They spoke Latin like they did in Rome, predominantly. They had the same kind of architecture and the look and feel of Rome. But remember the map from a few weeks ago? It was 800 miles away from Rome. And you know what? Most of the people in Philippi had visited Rome zero times. I mean, statistically, most of them have been to Rome zero times. Now, think about that. They are citizens of Rome, 800 miles away, and they've never actually been to the home city. Now, think. They are representing Rome 800 miles away, even though they've never been there. Do you see why Paul uses the word? you are citizens of the capital of heaven, and you've never been there. But let's behave in a way that rightly represents that heavenly homeland. And when our priorities are different from the world, it shows that we have a different accent. You're from somewhere else. And that's how salt and light happens in this world when that becomes apparent. A couple more things here. Look again at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You may get tired of me mentioning Caesar, because I mentioned him a lot with Philippians, but here's another Caesar analogy. There are coins in the Roman Empire that called Caesar, you ready for two Greek words, kurios, the word for Lord, and soter, the word for Savior. Now, that should sound familiar. Paul says, okay, if, something, if there's trouble in Philippi, if it's big trouble, perhaps the emperor, 
Nero in this case, would come perhaps to Philippi with his entourage, with his big group of soldiers, and he would suppress rebellion, and he would reinstitute Roman peace. Remember Roman peace, the Pax Romana, you remember that? He would reinstitute Roman peace, and he would set everything right. He would be your Lord and Savior. And many in Rome saw Caesar as a figure in that way. In fact, they called a lot of the Caesars after they died divine, right? God, sons of God. And so here Paul is borrowing imagery and says, listen, the one who can come from the capital and set everything right here is not Caesar. Our Lord and Savior is not Caesar. It is Jesus Christ. And He's going to come not from Rome to Philippi. He's going to come from heaven to earth. And when He comes, He's not going to bring the Roman peace. He's the Prince of Peace. He's going to bring worldwide peace after He rids the world of those who have opposed Him in rebellion. They will experience eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, and we will experience, who know the Lord, eternal life in a new creation. Now, if you don't know the Lord, and even if you do know the Lord, I want to say something of the gospel here at the very end. This sermon today could sound like well, I'm saved by working hard to obey these rules and stay on the path. And obviously, if you've been around here for a while, you know that that is not even close to the gospel, but the gospel is this. You and I are born dead in sin in Adam, and we live our life after the passions of the flesh, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience, Satan, and we're following our sinful impulses, we are born with our appetites being our God. That's how we're born. And we are heading the wrong way. And salvation is when Jesus intervenes in our life by His Spirit, grabs us and turns us around like Paul on the Damascus Road, perhaps not as dramatic but as miraculous as that. And what happens? Suddenly we see that Jesus took our sin and guilt on the cross, and we are clothed in His perfect righteousness, and we can stand before God. And a sign that we have been saved is that we now reject those bad examples and that worldly mindset and that end of destruction. We turn from that path, and we are on a new path, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, if you remember that. He gets on that path, and his burden, his backpack of sin falls off, and he makes his way towards that heavenly city. Why? Because that is the path that we walk as members and citizens of that heavenly kingdom. I'll close with this thought. Is your heart invested primarily in earthly things right now? And if it is, what work of repentance needs to be wrought by God's grace in your heart to turn to an eternal perspective? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, on our own, not one of us can reprogram our heart and our mind to set it on our heavenly citizenship, but Your Holy Spirit is powerful, and He, through Your Word, can truly change our hearts. A leper can change his spots. And so, Lord, I pray if anyone does not know you, Lord, in this moment, and their mind is set on earthly things, that you would say, come, let us reason together. Though your sin be red like scarlet, it shall be white as snow. Though it be red like wool, it shall be, though it be red as crimson, it shall be as wool. And Lord, help us to see that there is a promise of forgiveness in Jesus. And for those of us who are on the path of life, but we feel weary, 
and we feel distracted, help reprogram, even as we sing these next songs, help us to reprogram our focus and our gaze on Jesus and help us to follow those who set an example of Christ-likeness. Reading from Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Father, one last time we ask that you would give us that mindset. Help us to have our mindset fixed on the things of the Spirit. This doesn't mean we ignore the things of this life. It means we think about the things of this life from your perspective. We think about daily routine events from heaven's perspective. God, please give us more and more the ability to think in that way. Help us not to think with a mindset on our flesh, but a mindset on the Spirit where we get life and peace. And God, as we grow in that, help the life and the peace to flood into us so that we see how much better, how much more joyful it is to live in alignment with your Spirit and to keep in step with your Holy Spirit as He produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives over time. God, give us a longing for true holiness and a true desire to live in a way that would honor you because that is where you are glorified and we experience great life-giving joy. We pray this all in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.